All right, Daniel, very excited to speak with you today. Very excited to learn about your journey. Thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. How are you, Ryan? I'm well, I'm well. I'm very excited to talk to you. It's, uh, it's always exciting getting to speak with founders and CEOs of successful companies. Um, and really where I want to start is, is knowing what you know today. I'm interested in what type of advice you would give to a founder in the healthcare space that is producing a new product. One of the most difficult aspects is really creating an engaging product that healthcare providers can interact with and enjoy day to day. Is there anything up front that you think would be beneficial in sharing with other folks in the space? I think that there's a lot of possibilities and ways that a person can tackle a problem. And there's different areas of healthcare that people may want to go after. So in a broad sense, like you want to pick your market, what you're looking at, and that could be insurance companies, right? So say you want to create a product that you want to sell to an insurance company. That could be a product that you want to sell to maybe even medical devices, or you want to build a software for physicians in surgery, doing surgeries, or you want to do something else. So you, once you decide on the market that you want to go after, I think it, there's different timelines. Specifically for hardware, it is a much harder journey, I think, than for software. In the sense that if you're building, say, a, a device that will track heart, heartbeat or a device that will track blood pressure or a device that will track eye movement and give you some indication of what's wrong with your ear, I think all of those are different paths where you may actually have a longer journey. So you have to be mentally prepared for the length of the journey. <clears throat> Software tends to be a shorter journey because you know quickly whether something might work or not. If you're building hardware, I've seen a lot of people just take a while to build something. So at the end of the day, like where things get a little dicey and dangerous is when a user, when you don't have a user and you haven't launched the product, the longer that period is, the more risky the startup is, right? Because like you may not have any funding, you may have funding, but you only have so much like time that you're willing to tolerate without funding or without users. It's a long-winded way of saying you probably need to get to at least one user in the shortest period of time possible. I spoke to several founders this, this last week and I asked this question, do you have any users? When they say no, it's not a bad sign. It's just, are they focusing on getting that actual user to use the product? And if a person doesn't have a user, it tells me they need to focus on that. They need to print out like a piece of paper that says, get to first user. That's honestly like the end goal. Because if you're, if you want to build like a product that tracks or does like a variation of a dent, right? Like a stent going in or a catheter or something going into the body, it, you have to get that approved. There's a whole approval process from the government. There's regulations. That's going to slow you down. But how do you get to that first user as fast as possible? And the same thing goes for software. How do you get to that first user? And I don't think it's as obvious as possible because I see a lot of founders struggle. You know, Last week, I probably spoke to four founders and I asked them, do you have any users? And they said no. So like, why aren't they focusing on that? 
why aren't they having those conversations with those users? And that could be a doctor. It could be, it could be whatever they want. It, it does, this applies more to generic, generically, not just healthcare, but get that first user and continually check in on that first user and see how they are relating to the product. Are they using the product? What's wrong with the product? And of course, it's not going to be perfect. You're going to have to just keep iterating and iterating. And once you have a user, you can get two users. You can get four users. You can get eight users. You can get 16 users. And I think that's the journey that like a lot of people just say, I need this perfect product. I need this beautiful device that's going to do what I want it to do. And it's going to do it so, but that's all in the founder's head. Right. The reality is that what people want, right? So the moment it's in the user's hands, you're going to get enormous amounts of feedback really fast in huge amounts of it. And if you don't iterate on that, I've seen founders struggle where they force this product onto someone and they, the, the, the customer doesn't want it. The user doesn't want it. I can, can try to convince you to, you know, to buy a widget from me, Ryan, mm -hmm. I can say, take this widget and you're, you may not want it. And then, you know, I'm I, in my head, I think it's this perfect product for you, but the reality is you're like, it's just a useless widget. I'm just going to put it over here and maybe I'll shut Daniel up and I'll buy it. And then you just put it to the side, never use it. Like following up with consistency is so critical to like the lifeblood of a company. I'll give you an example outside of healthcare, Airbnb. A lot of people know the story of Airbnb. I love that company. I love the founders, but Paul Graham, the, the founder of Y Combinator told the founders of Airbnb, you need to go see your users. Whoever is buying your product, which in their case, it's renting space in a home. They wanted to see why were people doing that and why were these rent the renters allowing this to happen? And they just, they had candid conversations. They started staying in the Airbnbs. They started taking pictures of the Airbnbs and they were so close to the product that they saw all the problems with what they created they were able to refine those very quickly to sustain themselves. And their journey was, it was a hard journey, but I think that's where their inflection point was, where they just started to really like hone in on the users and understand like the pain points there. Anyway, so that was a long-winded, long-winded. No, great. I appreciate it. I appreciate the breadth of the answer. A couple of follow-up questions. You mentioned you've spoken to a few founders this week. I'm interested in a few common reasons you encounter for founders not having users. And what recommendations you would make for them to start that journey to user acquisition? I think founders get a lot of feedback. And this is just the reality. So it, there's all different reasons why a founder may not get that first user. All different reasons. One is I spoke to one founder a few months ago. And the founder said, I don't want to launch because I don't want to get, I don't want to embarrass. They need the perfect product in their head. They're looking for this perfect product. And their product wasn't going to hurt anyone. It wasn't going to, it was more of a consumer app. It was lightweight. It was fun. And I just told them like, what are you going to lose by getting that feedback? There's nothing to lose launch. That's one case where the, it was the founder holding himself back from launching their product. Another case is like feedback from investors. Another founder I spoke to, an investor said, you're not focusing on the right thing, right? You're not focusing where I want you to focus. And the investor was not an investor in this founder's company. Founder put this investor on this pedestal. 
who didn't invest in their company. So in the founders had like, why would I even try to launch the product? And I saw the product and I was like, people will use it. I saw it immediately. And I'm like, this is something people would use. Get the feedback in immediately. And don't worry about the revenue. Like for this one particular case where this founder was building this product, I really was like, don't focus on the revenue because if you get those users, you can figure that out as you go and refine quickly. Why don't people, why doesn't a company launch? Some of them don't launch for like valid regions because they're trying to refine something and they're not quite sure it's sellable yet. So like they're trying, but when you get into this, I'd call it like this fear mindset that it's not perfect. Like no product is perfect. You could look at the iPhone, right? It's this version is better than the last version. The next version is going to be better than this version. Like if Apple had that mindset, it needs to be perfect today. Like they would never release like the product themselves. And I think they perfected it at this point in time today for today, but there's always a better version that they can always make. So I think just getting your mindset into get that user Cause then that creates growth that creates a feedback loop that creates like a reality where you actually have like value and you're adding value and you're making something that the user wants and learning how they log in, when they log in, why do they log in? Like all that is critical for the lifeblood of a company. And I think, I think that's a, such an important piece to at the starting phase of a company. And for me speaking, I think arrogance can create failure. And I think like in my journey as an entrepreneur, I was humble enough to say, I need to talk to users on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, the users, because they create the real value for everyone that's involved, the employees I'm working with, the other people I'm working with, the investor, you need to get those feedback loops like going and you need to talk consistently to users about the product or else you look at companies that are, were amazing. And then they just get really arrogant and they just disappear. It's a good example. Kodak, the film company, they they were on top of the world. Like these camera companies were on top of the world. They were, everyone was buying film for their cameras. Everyone was printing these beautiful pictures out. And why did it, why did these companies not focus on like the digital side of it? and create like maybe they weren't maybe they didn't have to strive for a phone but they could have strived for a better camera with digital images as opposed to focus on the existing products and saying hey we're generating all this money from all of this film created let's just stick with what we know you know be hungry always be like asking the questions like what does the user actually want well it's like the simplest common denominator for them to use your product you're sure you can get like a really beautiful camera and use that camera and print out film. But at the end of the day, people didn't really want that. They wanted like the ease of just taking a photo on maybe not the best resolution camera, like just emailing it to their friends or texting it to their friends or posting it on a social network. And it's why did a company like that fail? And you can look at that, whether it's a big company or a small company, and there's a dynamic, like look at health gorilla, like, Clearly something is working in health gorilla up to this point to make the dynamics and the chemistry between the team work where the company is, was growing at such a great clip. I mean, for myself, like the founders of health gorilla would do check-ins and be like, Hey, how's it going? They always wanted feedback from me on their product and how their product worked. And 
I think that allowed for a good dynamic relationship with a company like a health gorilla because they always took feedback when when I was at Dr. Crono and, and giving feedback loops to them pretty aggressively. I'd be like, hey, can you do this? Can you do that? And the team there would refine as they went and it really worked out well. And when you do that, you create trust with the user. So like another example, there was a company I love called WorkRamp. WorkRamp's awesome company. Founder, whenever I asked them to do something, I was a user. They would refine the product as fast as possible to make that happen. Can you do that at the larger stages, like at a company like generating $500 million? Maybe not. But when you have $10,000 a month in revenue, you should probably listen to like individual users and the requests, if that makes sense. So it gets harder at the larger scales, but you can do it. You just have to figure out how to do it well. Like why are companies that are so successful today that, that are on a tear? Why are they so successful? Is it the feedback loops that they're actually like iterating and Every large company at some point will fail. I hate to say it, like if you look at every large company out there, maybe it takes a hundred years, maybe it takes a thousand years. If they're not consistently looking at how to create that longevity, it becomes a problem. So going back to your original question, founders tend to fail when they don't launch a product. If you can't launch it and you're a perfectionist, to a point where it hinders the product release cycles, it is not going to create a successful like venture for you. So launching and taking feedback very quickly and iterating on that feedback, creating that trust is probably the best thing. I think in the early days, I don't, I never think about revenue for companies in the early days. Sure. It's great, but you want the users to use the product versus the revenue when you have nothing or no users and nobody's using it. So like, it's an idea in your head that you're applying and you're trying to think of something use it. But anyway. That's great. I think it points. And as Health Grill is scaled, I think the user research and customer engagement is scaled alongside it. As we release new products and new supplemental data sources, collecting feedback early on and making alterations and adjustments to be to be suitable for the end user is it's a large part of our process. Fully agree with what you're saying there. I think it's great for the listeners to hear as well. You mentioned investors got brought up a few times during that last response, and I'd love to get your opinion on raising capital. It's a, it's a system that has transformed over the last few years. And I'm interested in your opinion, how the process has changed specifically for the digital health space and how your fundraising approach may have shifted over the years from Dr. Crono to where you are today. When building a company, I think a lot of it is not quite, oh, most companies are not a, a Facebook, like a force that's to be reckoned with. Or Facebook came out of nowhere and it just, it grew like a rocket ship. A lot of them are, a lot of luck is involved. And I don't think a lot of, a lot of people realize that there's a lot of luck involved with, with starting a company. So like when you building, if you have enough, like I would call it grit or fortitude, if you have grit and fortitude and you apply luck, you're doing something long enough where there are these moments of like, like light, light at the end of the tunnel. I think investors play into that. So say a company starts at this downturn, the market is really bad. People are scared. A lot of things are horribly happening in the world, like in Ukraine and all of these forces are against like the creation of a company. Fundraising tends to happen to companies that have like good growth in users 
uh, or in revenue. So say you take this grit and this fortitude and you apply luck and time and creating that feedback loop with users. If you do that enough, sorry, my dog's in the background. That's with the length of time, I think that your chances of funding go up and getting that feedback loop and getting users, getting growth, growing revenue or users, you tend to have a better chance over time. Now, in dark times like today, where you know things are just bad, I think there are, are opportunities and that is where a lot of great companies are started. So you get these mass layoffs at big companies, right? Fortune 500 companies doing these mass layoffs. You have startups doing these mass layoffs right now opportunistically a company today has more of a chance of getting really good talent versus funding okay so you, there's levers in the world for a startup one of the levers that's really like available to health gorilla today you guys can compete very well with other companies because the layoffs are happening people are scared and they want a good company that's not going to just let them go or they want to create their own job. So Health Gorilla is a startup in a sense. You guys are growing and you are like er way earlier stage than like these Fortune 500 companies that are doing these layoffs. A lever a Health Gorilla has is to do a lot of hiring. And this applies to any startup. So like Dr. Chrono in the early days, we were created during a downturn exactly like this. And we were able to hire some of the earlier employees that were believers because they wanted to create their own jobs. They were like, I just lost my job. I don't know what to do. I need help. And that magic of people wanting to work with you, it's great. People are willing to take more bets on equity. People are willing to take like less salary. They're not looking to have like their laundry done or a bus drive them to work or you know, what can you give me that this other company, I, it sounds silly, but like this company has cookies and a fridge full of soda. You guys at Health really don't have that. Like now you don't have a lot of that like competition for like really high markup, like silly services. Like this, this startup has a massage team come in once a week. Right. You guys are not, that, you're not doing that. You, you don't have those conversations. Now it's I need to create a, something for myself. I was just laid off and I don't know what to do. So a lot of people are coming to like health gorilla. So the levers for investors, maybe not as strong right now, meaning like investors might be a little cautious. The market's slightly, it's not as strong as it once was, but hiring is like a huge lever that you guys and all startups have, whether it's a one person startup, a five person startup, a 10 person startup, you know, 100 person startup, 1000 person startup, like all of those levers to hire, people can hire right now, because there's a lot of just layoffs happening in the United States and across the globe. So getting funding, it is possible. But you could do more with less, if that makes sense. So you can raise less money and hire for less base salary and comp. But the people are willing to do that because they want to believe in a startup and something that's going to be more secure than wherever they were before, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, absolutely. 
And that luck applies, that luck over time, if you have the grit, the fortitude and length of time and luck, things happen. There'll be like something that comes out for a startup. There'll be, every startup is built on like other past technologies, right? Like AWS came along that made like cloud services for startups to build their product on easier. Things like Python, Django, React, Ruby, like very quick. And they have these like quick ways to build startups. That's layer on top of AWS. And then you have fast prototyping with 3D printers. Like all of this stuff is like, the future startups are built on the past hard work of all these other entrepreneurs. So that means that you're, you may not need as much funding. <laughs> like in the past, in like the nineties, people would have to raise money just to get servers, like physical machines that they'd have to put into these huge data centers. And then they raise God knows how much money to just get the physical servers, the actual physical machine to put in so that they could run their servers. Now you can do it with so much, you can do so much more with less. Raising and the process of fundraising, there's different ways to do that. I think it depends on the entrepreneur and it depends on like the mindset they're, that they're in. Some some founders like to fundraise in like a mode, fundraising mode or non-fundraising mode. Right. We're going for our other entrepreneurs, find an investor that they love you have to be networking. Like you have to be networking for that. And then you're like, this is the perfect investor. I want to bring them in. And then you take their money. I think fundraising is also critical in the sense that you want to get people that are really on the like board with the vision of your company. You don't want to get investors that are, I would just say misaligned in the sense, like maybe you get an investor in who wants to exit in six months, right? And you want to go a 10 year journey but this investor is like, well, I want my money back in six months. Immediately, you're creating a, a misalignment and a friction point for you and your like investors. So you don't want to do that candidly. So you have to have those conversations and say, we envision ourselves going, you know, 10 years and then doing this, or we envision ourselves going seven years and then this, or we envision ourselves doing this in three years. If the investor doesn't like hearing that, they're not the right investor and you shouldn't take the money. <laughs> So like that you have to say no even, and that's hard. If you know that the investor is not the right fit, you have to say no because they're just not going to be happy with the outcome that you're trying to strive for as a founder. Yeah, no, that's great. It's a great response. I really like the idea of fortitude being a part of luck. I had a mentor tell me once that luck is hard work and the right time coming together simultaneously. So I think it's a, how you outlined it was great. Any advice for ensuring that a founder uh, any advice to ensure that founders are aligned with their investors questions you would ask or conversations you would have to make sure that this partnership is going to be a long and healthy one. I think it depends on the investor and it depends on the situation. So you can give, I've seen founders do all different sorts of things. Like some founders will send a monthly report. And in that monthly report, it'll say, here's our user growth. Here's our revenue growth. That's a really great way to, that's a great way to just keep everyone involved, like in the loop. Others, so they may want to have a monthly board meeting. This all depends on stage. Like in the early days when you're one entrepreneur and you may have one investor, do you need that monthly check-in? Maybe not. It depends on how much the investors put in and their, you know, how comfortable they are. So I think 
setting the stage for the way that you and the invest, there's no wrong or right answer to this. It's setting the stage, like the, what you feel comfortable with as an entrepreneur. And then also what the investor feels comfortable with as the investor. And then you can work with them and make it work. Monthly check-ins, quarterly check-ins, yearly check-ins, maybe a check-in every two years. It depends on the investor, honestly. Sometimes some investors, they're fine with not hearing anything. I've seen founders send out these monthly reports. Others have quarterly, big, beautiful decks. And they'll send those out and they'll show a bunch, for a bunch of information. So it really depends. I think where it could hurt the entrepreneur is if there's too much that investors are asking for to the point where they're not focusing on the company, but they're focusing on information. Like creating, if you spend two weeks every month creating like beautiful decks, for investors that are existing investors. Is that the best use of your time? Bring that up to the investor and say, hey, I'm spending so much time on this. Is there a way for us to optimize this? Can I just give you a, like a spreadsheet or something? I, I don't know. It really depends, but. Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. All right. So the reason we've been diving into all these investment conversations and advice you would give current founders is, is stems from the successful experience you've had in the past. I'd love to, I'd love to dive into Dr. Crono a bit. When you were scaling up in the early days, you had a lot of mobile EMRs emerging and competition got hot quickly, right? What did you and your team do to break away from that competition and start differentiating yourself? I think with that fortitude and that length of time, the company was started 2008, incorporated in 2009. We built all of this cloud infrastructure, which was for medical records and practice management. What Dr. Crono, what was interesting is when April 2010 happened, which was the day that the iPad was released, we were the only company that had actually launched a medical record on the iPad. Oh, interesting. Sure, there was Epic, Cerner, and all these other guys out there, and they were doing what they were doing. What made us interesting was we were cloud-based, what is cloud-based? You know, today, everybody's so cloud-based. Of course, it sounds so silly, but in 2008, 2009, people were not cloud-based. They were shipping CDs. They were putting the, the physical servers into the offices. I, we, I was just looking at Yahoo Mail and Gmail and saying, well, that's easy. Let's create a browser experience, 2008, 2009. But what made it interesting is in 2010, when the iPad launched, we were the first company to take medical data from a cloud service and place it onto the iPad. And candidly in 2008, 2009, a lot of doctors didn't care about our company because there were options where you could buy something on a CD, put it into your machine, have a local server in your like office and then you're good. Right. The, com the competition at that point were making, they were making a lot of money, but the moment the iPad came out, I think there was an immediate mind shift in like a subset of the community of like medical care where people realized I can take this like data and place it onto a device where I can literally walk around and go anywhere. And that was the moment where we had no competition. Right. Because no one was building in the cloud for a mobile native iPad, for the iPad. And that was 
that, that was the inflection point where we were going from almost some users to boom. User growth just grew very quickly. And I, that was where I realized the world is changing. It's going to be all in your pocket. You have thousands of songs in your pocket. You have all your banks in your pocket. You have all of your photos in your pocket. Why not ha not have your medical records in your pocket? And that goes for the patient, but also the doctor. And we started to pour all of our resources into creating native, by native, native mobile experiences. And what I mean by that is there was no... Uh, mobile browse that changed size in the past and you could log into something in the past it was like the browsers the developers weren't building mobile type apps for a web page so it just things didn't really work that well but natively you could do a lot of interesting things like check on the location of where the doctor is to do the prescription for the patient that lives down the block and there's a pharmacy like right over there to taking a photo and it uploading in a really seamless way. It sounds so silly, but this was really hard before the iPhone and the iPad. It was just hard because you needed like a camera, you plug it into a computer, you take the photo from the camera, it would upload to the computer, and then you'd have to figure out how to get it into that server that's like locally over there. Right. So right. doctors were starting to just get it. The competition wasn't like, a lot of the competition out there, they, we blazed a trail and said, we're going to create this mobile experience as best as possible on the iPhone and iPad. And it really, I would say it was a, a two-year process to get to that point where we really understood what we were building. How much time did your team at Dr. Chrono have at, as a head start before you saw the competition catching up from cloud-based mobile-first applications? I would say it depends. It depends on the company. Like some companies like still haven't built anything natively for these devices, but it's a mindset inside of a company, right? If you create a mobile experience, it's amazing and it's great. Some companies are doing it and some companies aren't. I was looking at a, a company that has a lot of users, a lot, a lot of users, and this is outside of healthcare. And I'm like, they must have a mobile app, right? I looked at a product probably two weeks ago and... The thing that was interesting about this product is they didn't have a mobile product at all. Um, Nothing. And they have, you know, God knows how many users, huge product. Like why would they not have a mobile product? And I think for me, like people question that. They're like, why, how, why do I need a mobile product? What's the point? Today, I still get that like questioning. And fundamentally, what do you have in your pocket? It's your phone. And I honestly believe to create ease of use for any type of product, whenever you connect something to your phone or your, or an iPad, there's like a delight or a ring. You put this ring on your finger. I don't know if you have an aura ring. I do not, but the tech is fascinating. It connects right to your phone. Yeah. You're delighted. You know, the lock on your door. If you have a door and you can tap something on your phone and your door opens, you're delighted. If your car, all of these are possible, but it's the people doing it that you go, I want that. In your car, there's an app for specific cars. You tap it and it will remotely start your car. So it warms up for you. There's a lot of delight and it's irrational because a lot of companies will say, it's cost a lot to create that app. Why would we do that? 
but people are not all it's what people just want it's not like necessity a lot of the time like bare bones products are they're fine you may buy a bare bones product but when there's that aha like little piece it really creates that like nice experience so getting back to your question i think uh I think some companies realized I should create a mobile experience and they started to do it. But I think every take on a product is different. Like all the EV companies out there, right? So you take like a Hummer, which is a EV car, beautiful truck. Then you take the Tesla, you take the Rivian. They're so different. Everybody's take is different. So people really pick and choose what they want. Some people want the Tesla for the self-driving. Other people want a Rivian because it has a bed and they can put lots of stuff in there. I don't think there's a, a lot of people say it's a winner take all market. There's only, there can only be one or they'll say healthcare is going to consolidate into one. It's got a rational thinking because there's Pepsi, there's Coke. Why isn't Pepsi dead? Because Coke is there. Like, I don't think people realize like people like choice and whether people like options in life. And I think that's where you're never going to get an only one winner. I think a lot of people have this binary. We're going to take the whole market. Why hasn't the larger healthcare companies done that? Like, why haven't they taken over the market yet? And there are so much, so much happening. Anyway. Oh, absolutely not. I a hundred percent agree. So my next question, I was going to dive into your product management philosophy. And I feel like we're, we've caught some of them throughout. Your feedback sounds like it's very important to you. Having a, a mobile first or mobile friendly application some, in some capacity sounds like it's very important. Options, right? Understanding that there's going to be a competitive landscape and that your offering needs to be comparable comparable to others. So consumers have a plethora of options. Do you have a particular product management philosophy for delivering value to your users? And I'd like to go specifically through the lens of Dr. Chrono and, and some of the chaos that can be associated with adding new features based off requests from consumers or feedback you've collected. Going through like a management style that I, you know, at my last, yeah, and the, the, I'd say the way that I normally work is, I guess like what I think about is, okay, Ryan, what are your top three objectives for this week? Right. And I would ask people this question. What are your top three objectives? And people would rattle off what their objectives are and say, I need to hire four people or I need to find one person that's good to work with for the company. Or maybe someone says, I want to build this feature. If you write that down someplace, chances of it happening are tend to be a little bit higher in, in my mind because you're you've written it down and there's so much chaos happening in a startup and in any job and in life and family when you go back and revisit what you wrote down this week it you tend to re-realize this is my top you're at health gorilla there's probably so many things happening it's a startup there's a lot happening in you're pulled in all these directions. If you wrote those three things down Sunday night or Monday morning and then revisited them the next week and look at them all and say, did I get any of these done? And if the answer is no, that's okay. Rewrite them down. If you go five weeks and you haven't done those three things, you're going to realize I'm not focusing on the right things because people are just pulling me in directions that are not important. And you want to think about what are those three things that are going to help you either 
improve or scale or optimize the company or you and like yourself. And people would put things down, going to take a two-day course, need to enroll in the two-day course for whatever product management. And if they didn't enroll in a two-day course this week, that's okay. But at least they like reset it the next week where they go, oh, I forgot to do that because I, I, there's too much happening in, in my life. I need to focus on that this week. And then if they could get that done. So it's every day, like reflecting on those lists and it could be simpler lists, like talk to this person. It could be just, that could be like your list. So I think people talk about these high level OKRs for like a month, a quarter, the year. I always, I, I would always call it like a micro OKR. People hated that term. I don't know why people hate that term, but I call it a micro OKR where it's, you can only do so much in a week. If you can get those things done, it's a success. And then layering on top of that, like strategy of listing those three things. When I was in person, I would have whiteboards everywhere, all over the office. And the team at HealthGorilla would see these whiteboards everywhere when we would get together with their team. But I would make people write it down on a whiteboard. And when you would come into the office every day, you'd see your OKRs and you'd see other people's micro OKRs. Right. You're like, you just look at them all and then you'd be like, those are mine. And then you would, it would just create transparency in a really nice way where people didn't even have to have meetings. And they'd be like, oh, this person is trying to make that sale. I didn't even know that. And then you look over there and like another micro OKR for someone. I don't think that the definition of OKR is what it's intended. It's intended for a bigger goal, but I think a micro OKR is more achievable in like a short term where you can just do something significant for yourself. And then it helps the team or it, maybe it's just intrinsically just for yourself, but whiteboards are mm-hmm. really important. It sounds really silly if you're in an in-person setting and then micro OKRs are really a, a great way to just set your goals, but all that other people see them say, I'm going to set these and you guys can see them. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. Specifically, you're working, if you're working in like a sprint environment, two to three week sprints where you're accomplishing mini goals each day or week leading up to a larger project. So I think the micro OKR makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. We've a health girl has brought up a couple of times here. I think, it, I think it's time to just dive into it, huh? Can you talk to me about how, how you and your team learned about health gorilla and how those initial conversations turned into a partnership? Yeah. So I, Health Gorilla, I believe had a different years and years ago when they were very, the founders were just starting out. And I think I saw them present at a really small local event. And I was just, I started to talk to the founder of Health Gorilla and one thing led to another. And I felt like he was, I felt like he had grit. Yeah. And enough is enough for me to, if you're going to partner with people, it's okay. Companies come and go, but you want to partner with ones with grit if you are going to partner with a company. And I think what made me really like the Health Gorilla team was I felt like they weren't going to give up because regardless of anything, hard times come, they come and they go, right? And I feel like startups are the ones that are doing well. It's like, like you start here and then you go through these waves and then it goes up and then you hire more and then you're, you find great investors and then you just keep going and riding this wave up and up some companies like go through these like really dark downturns and they and have hard hard days but i think with a company like health gorilla the the founders had a tenacity and a grit 
and also took feedback and iterated. If I throw a crazy idea at someone and they said it's done, it's, that creates like trust. And it's like this trust systems and people working together. That's how I'll give you an example, like the iPhone. I'll go back to the iPhone. Yeah. Apple doesn't make all the parts on the iPhone. I don't know if you have all these other companies that are working in tandem to really create the iPhone. Like this device, like this screen is from a company called Gorilla Glass. Right. Apple has enough trust in them because they're taking feedback from a company like an Apple to create an amazing product and they iterate together in some way that works for them. I feel like a health gorilla like has that natural feedback loop. That's part of their success, right? Like they're, whatever they've done in the past made them successful to this point. And I think that that, that created a really good experience when I was working with them, but met the founders in the early days and every journey is, it looks super easy on the outside. <laughs> Uh, like Facebook was created and whatever. And the guy's super wealthy and I want to do that. And it's easy. I think when you open up the curtains, I think that there's a lot of fortitude and there's a lot of not, it's not as exciting, as exciting as people might think it's, I heard once someone say, it's like watching the wall, the paint on the wall dry because it doesn't, it's sitting in a room, like hacking on a computer or it's not as fun as people think it is. And I think the guys at Health Gorilla, the original team there, they were, they had enough of that fortitude to make it to this point. And I think that is part of the magic to what made it successful. But I knew the founders from the early days and just saw the company grow and they had big visions. And I saw their visions and I'm like, that's a really cool, it's a cool way to think about the world. Yeah, our founders here have an exceptional way of seeing around corners. The foresight that they have and the vision that they've had for the past seven years is it's becoming a reality and it's a it's a pleasure to be a part of and a trip to watch unfold at the same time it's exciting to hear that you met him early on i'll definitely pass along to steve that you called him gritty i think he'll like that i want to be cognizant of your time daniel the last question i have for you is when you think about other emrs and virtual care startups today and the difference between building pipes into other data sources versus licensing an api that can act as an intermediary what do you recommend or how do you think startups should evaluate those two options? Data sources and APIs? Or... Yeah. And when you think about building individual pipe to a data source compared to licensing an API that can act as an interme intermediary between multiple sources, do you have a specific mindset on how you think, how you differentiate the two and how you might evaluate the two options? I may not fully understand the question, but I can try to answer it. I think... You know, yeah, I can give you an example. For example, a... a, a a virtual care startup that's looking for additional clinical data today could go build a direct connection between themselves and eHealth Exchange or Commonwealth. Or they could come to a, an organization like Health Gorilla or a competitor of ours who's able to provide an API that provides connections to multiple sources at once and makes promises to consolidate and normalize the data into a particular format. Do you see benefit, like more benefits to one over another? And is there any advice you would provide it's just virtual care founder we are just that I was just discussing? Got it. I see. It depends. I think it really depends. If someone wants to consolidate multiple sources of data, a health gorilla might make sense for that. So it makes it easy and maybe they only have one developer or they have a small team or a small budget. A, a health gorilla makes a lot of sense there. And then they could build on that and build momentum and take data and have that data flow between the two. 
I think if they're looking for something that doesn't fit a need, then maybe going directly to the data source might work. And what do I mean by that? Say there's like an API for an audio file. Nobody has. And it's an audio file for just, I don't know, speech. <laughs> you, they have people talk for four minutes and it's an audio file that has to do with your throat. I don't know. I'm making something up. Yeah. It's such a unique API. I don't know if that fits the need of does a company like fit that? Do they have an endpoint for that? And do they do that? So sometimes there's like niches where I think you go directly to the source, but for speed of development, going to someone, you know, and I'll give you an example, like a Stripe, like Stripe, people will go to a Stripe because it consolidates all of the banks in one place and you can transfer money quickly and use their API and it does it in a really beautiful way. You can get money from here to here. But if someone was doing something strange, they were creating their own, they were creating like a crypto token. And it was like outside of the sphere of what a Stripe did, maybe you'd go to that source. But at the end of the day, it's like, you, there's, there's a reason why Health Corelli is there, right? It does something really well and it does it right. And that's part of the, the success of what a Health Corelli is. Those are like Venn diagrams. You kind of want to like, who captures most of what you need and then you go outside of that when you need to which may not be often but i think i think there's a reason why like stripe isn't finance and the health gorilla isn't you know that that side of it and you build on all of these layers and you could do it at such an easier route than just going source to source because that can be painful unless you raise money get funding or have revenue to do that it tends to be a, like a, a frictionful process I, I said that was my last question I, i'm going to fire one more off if you have a moment sure yeah i just want to i want to make sure we touch on your new startup before we call this so you mind telling us a little bit about what that is and what the inspiration was for the problem that, that you're tackling with your vision sure i'm working on a new startup it's in the fintech space and it's more around the financial side. So I think uh, healthcare is a fun prop problem. I feel like there's a lot of problems in the fintech side, which kind of applies similarly. There's a lot of regulation. There's a lot of complexity. So focusing on the fintech side, it's a fun problem for me where I feel like I can take a lot of my learnings from like my past and, and apply it in a new startup. So right. like that. Is there a particular pain point or problem that you're trying to specifically trying to solve in the fintech area? Yeah. So I, th I think it's around money transfer. So I think money transfer today tends to be um, either slow or painful, or there may be issues. And I'll give you one example. Like the world has fundamentally changed after COVID, right? So you have a lot of people working remote. how do you work with all of these different vendors and make payments and track all of those payments? Some of them might be local in the United States where you want to make a transfer a certain way. Other them, other, others might be outside of the United States where you want to make a transfer a certain way. What I've been looking at is tracking payments, making sure everything kind of flows in, 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 in a specific way. And then also layering in possible block, blockchain initially, like looking at blockchain and saying, how do we apply blockchain to trans make these payments across the globe? And I'll give you an example. Say Health Gorilla needs a widget, right? Yep. Order like a thousand widgets from a company from Ukraine. You're like, hey, we want to support Ukraine. We want to buy a thousand of your widgets for 
golf gorilla. Anyway, that company needs to get paid by you. What's the fastest way to transfer the money to them? And also log that and it goes into your accounting system and it's all tracked. That's the problem I'm tackling. And we may layer in blockchain and crypto depending on how we, we see fit. It's an early stage company. So a lot of it is in the early phases. So it's a lot of fun and we are hiring. So I think if there's anyone looking, we'd be happy to. <laughs> there you go. Possibly. There you go. That's exciting. Congrats on a new venture. Looking forward to following along and seeing how you and the team do. I'm sure it's going to be a, an exciting ride for you all. Awesome. Thank you so much, Daniel. This is a great conversation today. I really enjoyed chatting with you and I'm sure the listeners are going to be really interested in what you had to say. So thank you so much again and have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you so much, Ryan. Awesome. Thanks.